Welcome to the Modern Nonprofit Fundraiser Podcast, where we help nonprofits reimagine generosity and put the joy back in fundraising. Hear from leading nonprofit fundraisers and marketers as they reveal strategies for strengthening donor relationships to propel your nonprofit forward. Hey, everybody. Today, we are honored to have Steve Cook on the podcast. Steve is the founder and president of Equitas. Uh, Equitas is an amazing organization that, that I've been a big fan of for a long time. They're primarily working in Malawi uh, to care for orphans and vulnerable children. They're working in a few different villages with an emphasis particularly on education. And so uh, Steve is a good friend, and so I'm excited to have him on the podcast today to talk a little bit about what makes Equitas tick. So welcome, Steve. Hey, thanks, Gabe. Appreciate you inviting me. Yeah, absolutely. So let's start here. I'd, I'd love for our listeners to hear a little bit about Equitas's background story, sort of what motivated you to found the organization, and how did you end up where you are today? Sure. Well, I guess it started about 12 years ago. Um, my wife and I had just moved to Charlotte and I was all in uh, to starting this. I had the software business that I was working in and um, I was really excited about growing and expanding the business and uh, just really sort of that was my primary focus in life was to excel at this business and uh, make a good chunk of money, make as much money as I could. Um, and not that there's anything wrong with making money, but that was pretty much my primary focus when we moved here and sort of everything that all the decisions that I made were kind of based on that. And that was the main goal. Um, and then I, one night I, I happened to be up and I was reading an email from the Sojourners magazine. Uh, it's an organization that Jim Wallace founded. And one of the headlines that, that really caught my eye was that there were uh, 28 million slaves in the world today. And it really shook me at that moment to begin reading about human trafficking and how uh, it's so prominent across the world and even in our country today. And so I stayed up and my wife had already gone to bed and it's 1 a.m. and 2 a.m. and I'm, I'm reading all about human trafficking. And then I started getting into reading about human rights activism and um, different ways that you could get involved in speaking out against this. Basically, it, it caused me to shift literally overnight that one night. It really shifted my way of thinking and changed my global perspective. And so as I was reading about human trafficking and human rights violation um, all over the world, I eventually landed on an organization called Save Darfur, and they were uh, heading up. Uh, it, this, this happened to be hap uh, occurring. Uh, when I was reading this, it was around the Beijing Olympics. And so they were saying that um, the genocide in Darfur, Sudan, was raging at that time, and they really wanted to raise awareness about this. And so they wanted to use the Olympics in Beijing as a platform to get the word out there because China was, uh, at the time, Sudan's biggest customer of their oil, and that, uh, that, that basically fueled um, this genocide. It fueled their, uh, their militia and everyone that was killing you know, in Darfur. It just basically helped to fund all of those, uh, all of those murderous activities that the government was actually uh, behind. And so... As I started reading about Darfur, then that led me into reading more about Sudan. And all of a sudden, I realized that 
one of the largest civil wars in our history was occurring right when I was in college. Uh, there was a, a civil war in South Sudan in which I think it was something like uh, 400,000 people were murdered and one and a half people were displaced from their homes. And this was all while I was in college. I was having the time of my life and all of these children are being murdered in, uh, across the globe. And it really shook me and I was ashamed at that moment to realize that I had been completely oblivious to all of these activities going on um, during that time of my life. And so that's when I decided that I did not want to let something like this continue without getting involved. And so I stayed up that night and uh, I guess early into the morning and I, I went ahead and signed up for this event uh, called Save Darfur. And I actually called the event uh, Charlotte Torch Rally, but I, go, I went ahead that night and, and committed to doing this event, um, unbeknownst to my wife. And so I got up the next morning and told Rachel, hey, I think we're, we're going to do this event. And, and then I said, well, actually, I, I kind of went ahead and, and committed to doing it. And uh, she was behind it. <laughs> that's kind of the, the way I've been rolling ever since then, is I just kind of jump in and you know, jump out of the plane and then try to find a parachute. And, but it ended up working. You know, we had some amazing friends um, that, uh, that we, were in, uh, we were in close contact with. And we pulled a, a sort of had a, a dinner party at our home, invited a bunch of friends from our church over, and we told them about this event. And, uh, yeah, that evening was basically when we came up with our committee. We came up with our program committee, the fundraising committee, the marketing committee, all the different committees that we needed to pull it off. Um, and then I started some conversations with some of the Sudanese lost boys that had relocated uh, in Charlotte. And really, it all started that one evening um, when I was reading about human trafficking. Uh, that one night just really turned my life around. Yeah. Uh, this, it was funny. I knew you back then. I remember um, getting a call from you and you started to talk about this stuff and you know, you were really just doing software development and it like so quickly escalated into, you know, there's this huge rally that's closing down Charlotte and there was like celebrities there. I'm like, what, <laughs> what the heck? It, just, it was just amazing. Yeah. You know, um, Liam, uh, um, Lamont Hebert, the lead singer for 10 Shuckle Shirt, he came, he brought his band and they performed and, uh, John Prendergast, who used to be an advisor to the Clinton administration, he came and spoke. We had a lot of the Lost Boys that came and, and performed. And, yeah, it was an amazing day. It, it was much larger than I really that I had hoped that it would be and, and really successful. I mean, we, we, we were able to raise enough money to send uh, some clean water and some medicine to the refugees there and cross the border from Sudan into Chad. And then we were able to support some of the Lost Boys here in Charlotte. Um, with their college education. And that was what really opened my eyes to, wow, you know, this, it's actually possible uh, as a software developer, it's actually, it's actually possible to pull something like this off um, on the side, you know, and that's what uh, motivated me to continue going with Equitas. Now, originally I thought the only reason we formed Equitas was just so that we could have a 501c3 so that we could accept donations because when we were trying to get sponsors for this event these all these businesses in town they definitely needed to to have a 501c3 so that we could you know accept their donations and all that and i really at that moment uh whenever we 
uh, well, at that moment, whenever I signed up for this event and then progressing through all these meetings and we decided to get the 501c3, I never once imagined then that it was going to progress over the last 10 years to where it is today. Um, I think at the end of that, that event, we had brought in about $40,000 just, you know, which was way bigger than we had hoped. That's great. I, you know, a, a big part of the reason why I wanted you um, on the podcast was uh, we've talked to a few people on here that are kind of, you know, 50 year old, $50 million organizations. And they're thinking about kind of the ins and outs of, of fundraising, which is, which is great. But I just love hearing the story of a founder who just sort of makes up their mind to make a difference in the world and, and sort of fearlessly charges into it, you know, in some sense, not having much of an idea what they're doing, but then turning around and looking backwards on it and, and looking at the impact. So a part of the thing now is that you guys have, I mean, you've partnered with, with churches, government schools, missionaries, you've partnered with chiefs, you're doing a lot of your work. You obviously moved your focus um, from U.S.-based stuff uh, focused on Dar Darfur to more M Malawi now. Um, but this little sort of side thing that you started doing, you're, you know, actively supporting, uh, 200 orphans. I know you've, you've built, uh, schoolhouses. So I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about where Equitas is now and kind of what your passion is at this point. Sure. Uh, after, after the, the event that we had, I knew then that I wanted to do something to help orphans. I just knew that after meeting these lost boys in town, it just broke my heart to hear some of their stories. They have horrific stories, you know, children going through things that no child should ever have to endure. And that just broke my heart. And I decided then that I wanted to help orphans. And so I tried to get into to Sudan. And the only way that I could get in was to fly in a cargo jet, to sneak in across, uh, to, to fly into Chad, and then under cover of darkness, sneak, sneak across the border with rebel soldiers and uh, a couple of other guys that I was going with, a, couple, a photographer. That was the only way I could get into Darfur. And, you know, that didn't exactly thrill my wife. And so <laughs> we, we, we put that off. Uh, that, that ended up never happening. But at the time, my brother-in-law was a, the country director in Malawi uh, for SIM. And so I started a conversation with him and he said, you know, there's, in a country of 15 million people, there's over 1 million orphans here in Malawi. And so he said, why don't you come over here and check out the situation, you know, find out what the needs are here. So I started doing my research, reading about Malawi, learning a lot about it. At the time, I think something like one in eight people had contracted HIV or AIDS, and it was, it was really destroying their, their workforce. It was uh, destroying families, tearing families apart. And so I said, well, I, I definitely need to go there and find out what's going on. And I, I read a book that Bono had written about, about uh, an orphanage or, or a hospital in Malawi that he had gone to. And, um, you know, I said, well, there's definitely a need here. So I went there and we met with community leaders. We met with some pastors. We went to, I think, three or four different villages and met with the chiefs to find out what, what sort of needs they had. And it became immediate, immediately apparent to me that education was a, uh, huge need there. They had 75 orphans at the time who were unable to go beyond elementary school because elementary school in Malawi is free, but high school is not. 
So they had 75 orphans um, in the SIM program that they simply did not have any funding for. So when I was there, I said, all right, done. Um, I took one of my board members with me and we said, well, we can raise enough money for 75 children. You know, it was like, it's like $300 a year for one, you know? And so we, we said, well, we could definitely do that for 75 students. So we came home and we had two fundraisers in homes. And with just those two fundraisers, we raised enough money for those 75 students. And that was extremely exciting to me. So I thought, man, maybe we need to do more, you know, man, maybe we need to, who knows what we can do. So um, there's a handful of very influential people in my life that I've met with over these last 10 years. And one of them is Vernon Brewer. He founded an organization in uh, Virginia called World Help. Um, several of my board members, my wife used to work for World Help. Um, I had done some development for World Help as a contractor. And so I knew that Vernon Brewer was a man who could speak into my story. So I had lunch with him and we sat down and I kind of told him about this. And he said, well, man, what's, what's your BHAG? You know, he said, you've got to have your big, hairy, audacious goal. If you don't have one of those, then why are you doing this? So it really made me think. And he said, well, basically from what you've told me about these fundraisers, it's telling me that, that you can do more. So I went home and talked to my wife and I said, well, I think we need to start doing more. We need to start drilling wells. So I started reading about how to drill wells, you know, how to, what are the other organizations in Africa that are drilling wells? And I, I found a couple organizations there that, are on the ground and they can oversee the projects. And obviously this is a, a side thing for me. You know, I don't have the resources to oversee a project like that. So we partnered with some organizations that were there and we, we drilled, I think about eight wells. We repaired a couple, we built some, some more hand dug wells. And I really started getting into the water aspect of all of the need in Malawi there the government had, had promised to build so many wells all over the country per square. I don't, I don't remember how many square kilometers, but they had promised to do that. And it just wasn't happening. And so I said, well, this is a huge need. And I saw people drinking out of holes, you know, that they had just dug in the ground with, with shovels. And they were basically drinking water that the cattle were walking through and, and the, the water was filthy. And so I said, all right, we're going to start drilling wells. And then I found out that they had a potential for, some income if they they had this garden it was uh two and a half acres i think is what one hectare is and so they said well we've got this garden but we don't have any way to to irrigate it there's not enough rain here and so i found um, a missionary there who his son is an engineer and he had de designed a solar powered um, irrigation system that could water all of the the crops on this on this two and a half acre plot of land and so I said, oh, that's perfect, man. We can do that. So we raised enough money for the solar-powered well, and we put some roads in, and we put culverts under those roads, and we, we uh, bought them some oxen and a cart. And so then I said, oh, wow, this is great, man. We're exploding. We're getting to the point now where we've got wells. We can do this community development, and we can, uh, you know, we can start partnering with other villages. And so then I started uh, thinking much bigger. And again, this is just me doing this on the side. And... So I had uh, the annual board meeting, uh, started laying out my plans for the future of Equitas. And, and just right before that meeting, I had started reading about fistula repairs. Um, and if, I don't know if you're familiar with fistula repairs, but I read about that. And for like $200, doctors can go in and, and perform a fistula repair. And I said, all right, we're going to start going into Libya and we're going to start performing fistula repairs. We can 
pay doctors to do that. And so I started drawing all this up on this big board and the board all just looked at me like I had three eyes and (laughs) (laughs) it said, I don't know what, you know, what are you smoking, but you're going to be burned out in less than two years. Mm -hmm. If you try to accomplish all this, you need to stick to one thing. You know, you need to do one thing and do one thing well. So my board, I, I respect every member of my board highly and they all really speak a lot of wisdom into my life. And I depend upon them in a tremendous way to direct me and guide me. And so at that time I had just finished reading toxic charity Mm -hmm. and that book hands down has been the most influential book in my way of thinking in regards to how I engage marginalized people and how I engage needs across the world and how I can partner with these marginalized people, not going to their communities with my own Western ways of thinking, but I go into their communities uh, and partner with them and figure out a way to work with them. And so after that board meeting, we decided that we were going to, going to stick with education because we had been successful. We, at that point, we had 200 orphans or uh, vulnerable children, which UNICEF defines an orphan as having lost one or uh, both parents. And so a lot of these children were considered orphans, even though they still had one parent, but they had you know, eight siblings. So they were still considered vulnerable. So we decided that we were going to devote all of our energy, all of our resources to education. And um, I had been sitting on the sidelines the first 30 years of my life. I decided I needed to jump in, but I got to the point to where I just knew that if I'm just doing this on the side, I can't try to save Malawi. You know, I just, I can, I can uh, try to help the children and by educating them and by doing the initiatives that we're doing, putting children through high school. We've got a couple in college now by building this elementary school, we're empowering them to take responsibility for their country. And it's the thing about education. And this is something that it took me a while to accept is that um, education is not really all that tangible and it's a multi-generational process. So the cool thing about drilling a well for me was that, Hey, I could drill the well. I could show up. There was a big party, you know, I could see the well right there. But then when I read toxic charity, um, it, it was a big wake-up call for me as to, well, now I'm responsible for that well. I'm going to have to make sure that it's still running. But still, I can see that well in front of me. Whenever you're talking about educational, it's not tangible. Yeah. I can't touch uh, a child's education, but I can, over the course of many generations, hope that that is going to uh, reduce that poverty on a global scale. And I will never see that in my lifetime. I will see little pieces of it. Um, but you know, building a school is something very tangible. It's physical, but in terms of the lives that are changed, I may not see any of that, you know, in my lifetime. What, and this is all fascinating. I, um, (laughs) what you've been able to accomplish as, as just a guy with, um, a vision to make a difference is, is amazing. Uh, Your, your sort of humility, uh, your willingness to ask people what they need it. I think it turns out that a lot of times folks actually know what they need. And so just asking them yeah. and partnering with them like can, can go uh, so far. Uh, we've seen this a lot with the nonprofits we work with is that they start out early on with this huge, we're going to save the world's focus and being able to narrow it. How quickly you're able to narrow it and how well you've been able to narrow it has been amazing. Um, <clears throat> on the back end of, of, of your growth and the difference you're making, 
um, has required some sustained amount of fundraising more than just a, a wine and cheese party in your house. So talk to me a little bit about um, how you think about fundraising. I know you have a passion for, you know, so much of the money getting out to the field and having this measurable impact. So talk a little bit about how you thought about like sustaining fundraising over time. Sure. Well, in the early years, I saw fundraising as a series of events. Um, in my mind, a fundraiser was an event, you know, it was, you have people come into a home, you have people show up somewhere, you know, uh, like the big fundraisers that a museum has, you know, that's a one night event. Yep. But um, as I've mentioned, Equitas is a completely 100% volunteer driven organization. I am its first and most involved volunteer. I'm a complete volunteer. So I quickly learned to embrace this notion that it, if someone wants to volunteer, whether that is helping stuff envelopes, uh, urine tax receipts, you know, we have friends get together, we stuff envelopes for the urine tax receipts, or we've got uh, a mailer we want to send out, which we don't send out hardly any mailers, but occasionally we do. And if we do, we'll have volunteers come over. But I started to, rather than if somebody comes to me and says, hey, I want to volunteer with Equitas, what, what can I do? Initially, I would think, well, what sort of event do I have that, uh, you know, that I could invite you into, stuff envelopes or whatever. And then I started to allow that to grow. Whenever they said, how can I volunteer? I would ask them, well, what do you want to do? You know, what, what are your ideas for volunteering? Or, you know, somebody will come to me and say, hey, I, I want to help you raise money. Okay, that's great. What do you want to do to help me raise money? You know, what sort of ideas do you have? And whenever they realize that I'm going to empower them, you know, like I've, I've learned to empower volunteers. So a volunteer isn't just somebody that you can put to work. A volunteer can become a leader for your organization. And so I've got several volunteers that have led the largest fundraising events we've ever had. Like for instance, I've got a teacher who came to me and we had uh, coffee one day and, uh, he said, man, I would love to, to do something with, you, you know, his wife, uh, his wife is on the board of Equitas and he said, I, I'd love to get involved and do something. And I said, well, you know, what do you want to do? And he said, I don't know. Let's, let's think about it some more. And so he said, let me talk to my wife and let's think about it some more. And so then he asked, and I had just come back from a trip to Malawi in which I spent a couple of days with orphans documenting their lives through video. I, I basically shadowed two, two orphans, two different days uh, from sunup to sundown with my video camera and followed them everywhere. And so this one orphan, his name was Portifar. He had, I found out he had been walking eight miles to school every day. Um, he had to get up at around 4 a.m. Uh, he had to collect water because he's living with his mother and his grandmother and his siblings. So he was, he spent, you know, more time in his morning walking to school. By then I had already who knows, you know, what I had accomplished in those two hours on a normal day at home, but he spent those first two hours walking to school. And so I was telling this story to this teacher and I could see something light up in his eyes. He said, dude, that's what I want to do. I want to hold a fundraiser at my school where the students walk the same distance um, that your students walk to go to school. And so I said, that's great, man. I said, you take it, you run with it. You do whatever you want to do. I'm here to support you. You let me know whatever resources you need. Uh, he's, so he, ha he, he organized the entire event. He organized um, assemblies at his school. He put together all the print. He helped the students 
create GoFundMe pages. We ended up that first year raising, I think, $9,800. He's done it four years in a row now. This last one that we had, we ended up raising around 8,000. We just did it um, about three weeks ago. But this all started with coffee and this teacher saying, hey, I wanna get involved. And by empowering him and, and allowing him as a volunteer to become a leader, um, I think that is what was so successful about that first initial meeting that I had with him over coffee. And so now anytime somebody comes to me and says they, they wanna volunteer, I open up the floor to them and, and no longer am I the leader of this organization, they're leaders. And basically what I tell anybody that wants to get involved is that I am really not Equitas because I'm a volunteer just like everybody else. So you're Equitas, you're Equitas, he's Equitas, she's Equitas. And by empowering those volunteers, it has really opened up um, so many opportunities for us because now it's not me trying to organize all of these fundraisers, it's me showing up to speak at a school assembly or showing up in a classroom or, and now this teacher, by the way, also has every day, he's got his students working in the teacher break room, making coffee for the students and all of that, all of the proceeds from that go to Equitas, to our village schoolhouse. And we've got bakers in town now donating baked goods every Friday that they can sell. And, and so this all started really with that first meeting with him is what really kind of opened my eyes to uh, empowering volunteers. And um, I think that's been a critical piece for us is just not trying to hold fundraising events, but allowing volunteers to lead them. Yeah. I, I love that. that. So much of what we talk about on this podcast and away from podcasts is, is thinking about holistic generosity. So people aren't just checkbooks. It's, it's time, talent, um, you know, social capital, uh, it's, it's much more holistic than just money. And, and that magic moment is you figure out what somebody's passionate about, what drives them, what they're good at, and you connect their superpower up with your organization. That's when you really get traction. And so I, I love how intentional you've been about doing that. Um, I love how much you've been able to accomplish just sort of empowering people to go out and, and do fundraising in entertaining ways. One of my favorites that you did was that these really nice sort of briefcases that uh, was it Colson Keen? Is that the guy there in town? Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 Tell, tell us like just briefly a little bit about that because I love that was, I thought that was a great little innovative thing too. Sure. So uh, Scott Holford, he's one of the board members on Equi of Equitas and he's got this organization, a uh, really successful business here in town called Colson Keen. And they make uh, all sorts of leather goods. You know, they make journals and a plethora of leather bags. And um, so I don't remember if I brought it up or he brought it up, but he's one of my best friends. And so I spent a lot of time with him. And we were just talking about, he, he mentioned that he wants, he, he wanted Colson Keene to somehow get behind Equitas and support it. And we came up with the idea to start giving away their journal covers. Uh, they make these really sweet journal covers. Um, and so we said, well, we can just start uh, giving those away for a minimum donation of X dollars. And that was the first, the first go around. And that first time with the journals was highly successful, man. We, I don't remember how many we gave away, but it was a lot of them. So then the next year, he decided to step it up a bit. And he said, you know what? I want to, I want to donate some of my best top end leather satchels. Uh, this is at year end giving. 
I want to donate any of these, uh, these high-end satchels for, and I think we set it as a minimum donation of either 500 or 1,000. I think it had two different kinds of bags. Yeah. And so for a minimum donation of either 500 or 1,000, you would get one of these satchels. And I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't keep, keep up with my inbox that first, uh, <laughs> the, whenever he introduced those satchels, I think we gave away maybe 15 of them, you know? So for a, a year end fundraiser of, I think it was roughly around 15,000 that came in all because he decided to, you know, use his product to help bolster our fundraising and, yeah, that's been a, a really good thing. And we, we don't do it every year, but um, uh, we did it last year. And I think maybe this year we're going to come up with something else because he's always getting new, new types of products. And, and so, but yeah, that's been a great way to help bring in fundraising, especially at year end when you're talking about Christmas gifts and, and those sorts of things. Yeah. Oh, that's great. I, I love, you know, kind of, it's almost a startup mentality. It's like, you know, growth hacking fundraising where you're just, you know, you're kind of the, the way you think is, man, I'm going to try a bunch of stuff that's outside of the box. That's completely not normal. Some of it will be, you know, fall on its face and be a horrible failure, but then some of it's amazing. And you just sort of run fearlessly into it. You test, you're okay. Failing, you move to the next thing, but it's been fun seeing these, these really successful things that you've done over time. Um, the, okay. That's, um, that was sort of it because those are the big questions that I wanted to get through. And that's, it's just amazing to hear your story. We usually end these things with a, a little lightning round, just a few questions to get through. Is it okay that if I kind of just do a, a quick drill on a few questions here? Sure. All right. So first one, we usually ask people's uh, what's the book you've read in the last year and it could be more than a year, but what's the book that, that you've read in the last year that's had the biggest impact on you? Well, it's hard for me to come up with one. Can I give like maybe two or three? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I'd say one was uh, Deep Work by Cal Newport. Yeah. Um, just talks about, talks about the importance of disconnecting from media in general that allows you to really become immersed in your work, um, which is the only way you can really accomplish anything of significance. You know, so that that's, was a great read. Um, Winning the Story Wars by Jonah Sachs was a good one too because – Equitas really, we're all about storytelling and, and telling personal stories uh, related to our work in Malawi. And so that was a good one. And then finally, uh, one I was thinking of was The Shed that, fe that Fed a Million Children. It's about basically a very similar story to mine, um, this couple in the UK that decided to start helping children all over the world. Yeah, oh, that's great. I love those. Those are three pretty diverse recommendations. <laughs> They're amazing. Um, I'll, I'll throw one more in there just because you, you gave one to me to read a while ago that, that as, uh, was just really pivotal for me, but that's the book. What is the what, which is just oh, a, gosh, yeah. the great transformative book. It's been out for a while, but that's another one that I think if you're, you want to have your mind shifted through a great story, that's a, just a really good book. That, yeah, that, that book was really, I got to meet Dave, Dave Eggers and, and Valentino Chuck Deng, the, the, uh, protagonist in that book. Yep. I got to meet, meet them at an event here in Charlotte. That book was very instrumental uh, in my journey and all this. That's great. Yeah, I love that book. Um, okay, uh, podcast. You got any podcasts you really dig? Yeah, I, I mean, I listen to audiobooks more probably. When I ride my bicycle to my office, I'll listen to audiobooks. But if I go to my podcast, I'll crank up The Liturgist. Mm. 
That's great. I don't know that one. What's it about? Uh, it's basically, you familiar with, with uh, Science Mike? Yep. It's him and uh, Gunger and Gunger's wife or uh, somebody else that's, that's an artist. And it's sort of the convergence of science, religion, and art and a conversation about uh, all sorts of topics. Some could be extremely controversial. Um, some could be spiritual. Some can be related to the divergence of, uh, you know, how do you explain quantum physics and the spirit realm? And the next one could be about, you know, March for Our Lives. They, it's, uh, another one could be about sexuality. They're just extremely diverse, but they're never disappointing. They're, they're so interesting, and you could get sucked into them right away. I, that's the podcast I would recommend over any right now. That sounds awesome, actually. It sounds great. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay, final one. I know a little bit of this because you've talked about it just through our conversation here, but what are the personal habits that keep you energized? Like what keeps you from burning out with everything you get going on? I'd say exercise and meditation really play an important role in my daily routine, just for keeping me centered, um, keeping me alert. And uh, yeah, I, I can tend to get pretty stressed out. I'm, I'm pretty high strung, I think. And meditation helps to balance that. And exercise just, uh, yeah, I want to stay alive, you know, and the only way to do that is exercise. So yeah, those are the two main things. Well, I'll say I, I didn't ask permission from Steve before I'm going to say this, but before we got on the podcast today, I look in the video and he had a black eye and I asked him how he got the black eye. Apparently he's training for a 5k and, and only ate sushi before he tried to run a few miles on the treadmill and went down hard. And so I'm going to, on the statement about exercise, keeping you alive, I'm going to beg to differ a little bit. It looks like exercise is not to kill you right now. Yeah. Maybe I should try just running in the park or something. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> or at least get a few more carbs in me. Yeah, that's right. Well, <laughs> Steve, it has been amazing to have you on today. Um, so glad we got to have this conversation uh, thanks so much and congrats on everything you've accomplished at Equitas. Oh, thank you again, Gabe. I appreciate it. It's been, it's been fun talking with you. And I know I probably took a lot of rabbit trails, but hopefully I was focused enough <laughs> for this. Yeah. That was great. That was great. All right. Thanks, man. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Modern Nonprofit Fundraiser. The podcast is brought to you by Virtuous the CRM and marketing automation software helping charities raise more money and create more good. Be sure to rate and subscribe. For more resources, head to virtuouscrm.com.